Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 84, A Try and a Miss. Last time, Malta's governor, General Dobby, had written to London about his island's diminishing supplies on April 1st, 1942. Its ability to defend itself had improved when fighters from the U.S. carrier Wasp and the British carriers Eagle and Argus recently arrived. As for actual food and fuel, the Admiralty decided on a desperate but solid plan. Two small convoys would head for the island ASAP, one from Gibraltar and the other from Alexandria. Not only would this increase the chances of some of each getting through, but it would also, hopefully, split the Axis forces attempting to play spoiler. Unfortunately for the beleaguered Maltese, the British simply could not put their best foot forward on this. There wasn't time, while the Axis forces, mostly the Italians, had a surprise in store. While these two convoys, Operation Harpoon from the west and Operation Vigorous from the east, were having their preparations laid into, something had to be done to buck up the spirits of the locals suffering alongside the Commonwealth forces, who were just following orders. On April 16th, King George VI awarded the entire island of Malta the George Cross for her people's bravery and willingness to resist. Getting back to what would protect the convoys, the Admiralty had little to choose from, as the Atlantic, the Arctic, the Indian Ocean, and the rest of the Mediterranean could not be ignored not even for a little while. Still, Convoy Harpoon left Gibraltar on June 12th. Surrounding the five freighters and one fast American tanker was H-Force, consisting of the aged battleship Malaya, the far-past-their-prime carriers Eagle and Argus, the supporting modern cruisers Kenya and Liverpool, the anti-aircraft carrier Charybdis, and eight destroyers. Whereas the supply ships had to make the entire journey, the escorts would only get to the Narrows, the channel of water between Sicily and the coast of North Africa. From there, the through escort would take over. But again, it wasn't the best the Admiralty normally had. Commanded by Captain C.C. Hardy, he was using the light cruiser Cairo as his flagship, which had been recently altered to be an anti-aircraft vessel that had eight four-inch HA guns. This would allow him to punish any bombers that visited them. But as for enemy surface craft, the Cairo could not play a part. To compensate, she would be joined by nine destroyers, of which five were the big fleet types. The other four destroyers were also good for anti-aircraft duty, but did not have torpedo tubes. Also along though they would be staying at the island, were four minesweepers from the 17th Flotilla. This was only the beginning of London replacing what minesweepers had been lost the two months before. Soon after, but not in enough time to help Harpoon, would six motor launches from the 6th Flotilla, converted to minesweepers, be sent to the island. While C.C. Hardy commanded the force that would protect the convoy during its last leg, the overall command belonged to Vice Admiral A.T.B. Curtius. During the first day of heading east, Harpoon saw no enemy vessels above or below the surface. 
Yet considering how the British had been harassing the Italian fleet since 1940, Curtius was not surprised. However, the next day, June 13th, the Axis forces were aware of their presence. Kesselring decided to send bombing raids against the convoy, one originating from Sardinia, the other from Sicily. After that, a cruiser squadron would be sent to hopefully finish off the survivors south of Sicily. For whatever reason, the air attacks did not take place on the 13th, but rather the 14th, along with several submarine raids. And it was then the British found out, desperate as they were for naval power in the Mediterranean, that their carriers were of another age of warfare. Each carrier could only send off ten fighters at a time, and did so when the first attack wave came in at 10.30 a.m. on the 14th. It was soon apparent that the quality of the British pilots were irrelevant, due to the number of incoming bombers. It was the Italians with high-level bombing and some torpedo bombers mixed in. These were followed up by Ju-87 dive bombers, but the British ships knew that they were probably Italian crews on those as well. Hence, their anxiety was not what it could have been. Yet the Italians were good enough. Having to deal with so few British fighters, some of the torpedo bombers got through and sank the Dutch freighter Tenenbaar. Meanwhile, one of the modern cruisers, the Liverpool, was hit in its engine room, which had to be towed back to Gibraltar by a destroyer. Then the Italians made a partial mistake. As the Liverpool was being towed back west, some of the Italian bombers could not resist wanting to finish her off, as opposed to spending the rest of the day taking out the convoy ships. Fortunately for the crew of the Liverpool, though further damaged, she managed to make it back to the rock. The Germans came that evening and focused on the screening ships, knowing if these could be taken out, the freighters wouldn't last very long. Despite their Ju-88s getting through the carrier's fighters, no further ships were lost that evening, though there was some damage shared by many of the vessels. That night, Convoy Harpoon was left unmolested, and by dawn were on their way past Cape Bon, with a view towards the south of Pantelleria. Then the Italians arrived. Coming on were two Italian six-inch cruisers, the Raymond Montecucole and the Eugeno de Savoia. With them were the destroyers, the Vivaldi, Malocello, Premunda, Origani, and the Ascari, all under the command of Admiral Dazzara. They had sailed out from Palermo the day before, the 14th. Captain Hardy knew of their presence, having been informed by fighters from Malta. Unfortunately, Dazzara did not get the same level of help from his planes, hence did not know the enemy's strength, which makes the fact that he still came on relatively untraditional. And now came the Italian surprise. At 6.40 a.m., the first salvo from the attackers was launched, followed by a second. It was then the Cairo was hit. This level of accuracy was not expected of the Italians, probably by either side, but Dazzara decided to take advantage of his good fortune. Two more Italian salvos were offered up, but as they were still 20,000 yards away, the British could not respond. 
they would have to get in closer if they wanted a serious chance of scoring a hit. By the time of the fourth salvo, the British had laid down covering smoke for the freighters. Now that they were covered, it was time to go after the Italian vessels. Hardy's damaged Cairo and the smaller Hunt-class destroyers continued to lay smoke as the larger fleet destroyers, all five of them, charged at the enemy. The attacking force was led by Commander Scurfield in the Bedouin. Because the British were coming so fast at Dazara, he was forced to redirect his guns at the oncoming destroyers, which is exactly what Hardy wanted. The freighters immediately started making their way south. But again, the Italians surprised the British with their accurate gunfire. While still attempting to get into range, the Bedouin and the Partridge were hit. The former amidship by a six-inch shell, the latter in the stern. Either way, both came to a halt. Yet the three remaining ships charged on. Soon the Ethereal was within range of the nearest Italian cruiser and let loose. Now within 8,000 yards, the Italian vessel took two hits. After this, the Italian cruisers turned to run, followed by the destroyers. Normally, this would have been the end of the engagement, and it would have been Hardy's decision whether to continue the chase or focus on the freighters. But the Italians had another surprise. Two of the destroyers did not turn away and pour on speed. Instead, they pointed themselves at the retreating freighters and poured on speed. But before they could get very far, the remaining two destroyers cut them off and began to fire. Now everyone was within everyone else's range. The Vivaldi was hit in the boiler room by a 4.7-inch shell. The Malocello, equally brave, circled her damaged sister and began to lay smoke, which did not do much because the two British destroyers were right there. But as they went in for the kill, all five were called back. Still, the engagement was not over, as the Italians were very German-like during this battle. The British destroyers had been called back as a wind change had removed the smoke covering the damaged Cairo. Dazara had his two remaining destroyers train their surprisingly accurate guns on the Cairo and the Ethereal. Again, a solid move. At ten minutes past seven that morning, the Cairo was hit at least two more times. This was not how the British pictured this convoy taking place. Still, the worst seemed about to be over, for it would have been of little moment to chase down the two Italian ships, especially with one of them having been damaged. But at that moment, German bombers appeared overhead and made directly for the freighters. Protecting the freighters were the smaller class Hunt destroyers, and they put up everything they could into the air. Yet some German bombers got through. The chant was hit, blew up, and sank in less than a minute. The convoy's only tanker, Kentucky, suffered a near miss and had to be taken under tow by the minesweeper, Hebe. This was getting bad for Hardy and fast. His larger destroyers finally came back, and together they improved their defensive capabilities. Fortunately, Desaro did not seem enthusiastic about coming any closer, yet remained just southwest relative to the freighter's moving position. Another option Desaro had, 
as all the escorts were now making smoke, was to use that same smoke to barrel through, to get in close to the freighters and send them to the bottom. Yet that would mean opening himself up to the British gunners, something he did not seem keen on doing. What's more, his three other destroyers, the ones that had fled earlier, now reapproached, but made it clear they would not be joining in on such an attack. Dezara turned north and headed for home waters. The Cairo and the destroyers followed him for a while to make sure his intention to leave was genuine before turning around to catch up with the freighters. It was only 8.30 a.m. Who would come at them next? And what was Hardy going to do with this mess on his hands? Both answers came soon enough. At 11.20 a.m., the Germans showed up again for another air assault. They were beaten off, but only after damaging the British cargo steamer, the Burdawan. But that had been more luck than anything else. And who knew how long luck would stick around? Which meant that Hardy now had his next answer. He had to focus on what freighters he still had that could move and sink the rest. Contacting the escorts, Hardy informed them that the Kentucky and the recently impaired Burdawan were to be scuttled. They were to then rejoin the fleet. This was done quick smart. As for the two stalled destroyers, the Partridge and the Bedouin, they were still effecting repairs, hoping to report that they could once again move under their own power. The Partridge was able to accomplish this, but not the Bedouin. Still, enough ships had been lost this day, so Lieutenant Commander Hawkins of the Partridge tossed a line to the Bedouin, and they began the journey to Malta. However, the now unpredictable Italians showed up again and went after the towed ship. Needing to have its full range and speed, the Partridge unloosened the Bedouin and began to lay smoke, yet there were so many Italian ships around them now. The Partridge was kept busy while a torpedo bomber got past her and hit the doomed Bedouin amidships. She was gone in a matter of minutes. Prudence demanded that the surviving ship leave the area. Clearly, she would not make it to Malta, so turned west and dashed for Gibraltar, zigzagging as much as possible. As the Italians had stayed in the area, as the odds were clearly on their side, with air support, they picked up the Bedouin's survivors. The reduced convoy kept moving east, but were attacked again around 7 p.m. by 12 dive bombers. Yet the escorts, now having fewer ships to protect, fought off the prowling aircraft. But Harpoon's trials were not over. Coming close to Valletta, the Cairo and the destroyers went in first, even ahead of the minesweepers. A costly mistake. Two destroyers struck German mines, which brought them to a halt. They were followed in their fate by the hunt class Badsworth and Kiljawak, the Matchless and the Minesweeper Hebe and the Orari. Soon all of these were still in the water, affecting repairs and dealing with the inrushing water. Later that night, all of the damaged ships, except one, made it to harbor, along with the two surviving freighters. The Maltese, hiding underground, rushed out and unloaded the 20,000 tons of supplies in record time, 
Just then, another German air raid came, damaging the harbor and dockside further. Having lost more ships than thought possible, the dejected British refueled the Cairo and four remaining destroyers, who then left back west with the mine layer Welshmen. They, in their turn, were harassed by the Germans until they reached the protection of Admiral Curtius's cruisers. The after-action report informed London that Malta now had a few more supplies. Time was bought, but not cheaply. As for the destroyers Matchless and Badsworth, they would be in dry dock for some time. The Italians claimed a complete victory, which was not technically true, but they had outdone themselves compared to their fighting of 1940 and 41. Yet Harpoon was a terrific success when compared with Operation Vigorous, coming from the East. As for Vigorous, it was almost undone before it ever started. Commander-in-Chief of the Mediterranean Fleet, Admiral Sir Henry Hardwood, took a lot of convincing that Vigorous was needed. Then after, his attitude was, right, but how is it to be done? For London to order something was one thing, but that did not make ships appear out of thin air. The Mediterranean fleet was, by mid-1942, much smaller than it had been, for the simple reason that so many ships had been lost in operations. So now he was to bring supplies from Egypt and again run a gauntlet that would be strewn with Italian naval craft and German air power. Was it even worth the attempt? After all, the British naval forces east of Malta had less than those to the west. But it was decided, and now the details had to be worked out. Searching his cupboard, Hardwood had at his disposal a few Dido-class cruisers, the 15th cruiser squadron of Real Admiral Vine, and fewer than 20 ready-to-go destroyers. What Hardwood did not have, which was considered absolutely vital for Vigorous to have a decent chance, was a modern carrier. Yet there was none to hand. This was the first major problem to be solved. The only possible solution for this was to coordinate aerial reconnaissance flights in front of the convoy's path, and to then concentrate what submarines were available south of Taranto. For surely the Italians had battleships ready to intercede. They had, in fact, pursued Vian's cruiser squadron previously. But would they come out again? By the time the British knew the answer to that question, it could be too late. Also, there would be no element of surprise as the Germans had increased their bomber strength at Crete. They would see the gathering of ships before they set off. What's more, the Germans had also strengthened their 6th E-boat flotilla at Derna along the North African coast, which meant that even if the convoy got through, the escorting ships would be attacked during the entire sortie to Malta and back. The odds were getting longer by the minute. To help even out those odds, a number of cruisers and destroyers had recently arrived from the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. Still, this was going to be a long shot. Too long for C&C Mediterranean Fleet Harwood. He decided that power would not get the job done alone. Instead, it was time for some sleight of hand. Sending out a decoy convoy on June 11th, 
seven Hunt-class destroyers, and the AA cruiser Coventry, they had the task of testing the Italians' intentions. If all went well, warships from the peninsula would come out and be roughed up by the false escort. Even if there was not a decent amount of Italian ships sunk, just having their fuel used up, thus reforcing them to turn to base, would hopefully open the way to Malta. The ships duly set out, and, as expected, were immediately noticed by the enemy. Having come just north of Tobruk by the morning of June 12th, the Ballard Group reversed course to meet up with a convoy, itself departing from two different places, Haifa and Port Suez. It was hoped that this would not only allow the convoy to start off unmolested, but confuse the enemy with its unexpected retreat. But before the three groups could meet, 15 Ju-88 bombers found the dummy convoy. No ships were lost, but one sustained enough damage that it had to be sent directly to Tobruk, as it would have sunk had it stayed out any longer. As for the convoys, their first leg was anything but a success. Having only just started, the Elizabeth Back found that she could not keep up, so turned back to harbor. In her wake were the corvettes Iera and Primula, both with engine troubles. Then the Dutch cargo ship Echterkirk found she was unable to keep up, so turned around as well, covered by the destroyer Tetcott. Operation Vigorous was falling apart, barely having left port. As for the Dutch cargo ship, she was soon harassed by Ju-87s that pounded her, despite the best efforts of the Tetcott. The Echterkirk went down, the destroyer managing to take out three bombers. Now the three parts of the convoy were joined, being covered from the air by North African base Hurricanes and Kitty Hawks, which were desperately needed as the Germans kept reconnaissance planes with the convoy at all times, reporting its position. The British fighters did what they could to keep away the German bombers, but the ships below suffered constant attacks on the 14th. Before too long, the convoy was beyond the range of the land-based fighters. Whatever protection there would be now had to come from Harwood ships. During the afternoon of the 14th, the German waves kept getting larger, the British destroyers and cruisers doing all they could, which was not enough. The cargo ship Bhutan was hit by three bombs and sunk. Another merchant ship was damaged. Considering the number of German bombers coming in, the escorts were doing an amazing job. Still, Vian calculated that many of his ships had already fired nearly 50% of their HA shells just to keep the Germans back, and the convoy had a ways to go. Vian was getting worried. It was then that he was informed that the Italians were leaving base. Hoping to cross his path by morning were the two Italian battleships, Vittorio Veneto and the Littorio, along with two 8-inch and two 6-inch cruisers with 12 supporting destroyers. Harwood's replacement for the carrier, his aircraft and submarines, strove to chase off the fickle Italians. The Italian heavy cruiser, the Trento, was hit by an aerial torpedo, which caused it to slow down enough for the submarine Umbra to finish it off. 
Supposedly, a battleship had been hit twice, once by a bomb and then by a torpedo. But as she stayed in the fight, those reports from the British soldiers were ignored. Vian was a dogged and unflinching commander and had crossed swords with the Italians at least twice before. But simply, the number of air attacks coming at him were too much. He radioed Harwood for instructions. The Admiral was equally game, but now realized the odds against Vigorous. He instructed Vian to continue sailing. Hopefully the Italians were getting fearful with what losses they had suffered, but then to reverse course at 2 a.m. on the 15th. At that time, the 40 ships of the convoy began this complicated maneuver. As the 4th Cruiser Squadron was leading the way, it was now in the rear and thus poured on the speed to catch up to the merchant ships. But at that moment, a German e-boat flotilla appeared and launched torpedoes at the warships. The light cruiser Newcastle avoided one torpedo, but that just put it in the path of another, getting hit in a forward compartment. For the moment, she was now out of contention. The S-boat 5-5 launched a torpedo that struck the destroyer hasty. She was beyond repair, and so was sunk by the Hotspur. The convoy continued east. By now, the men of the convoy were tired and frazzled. False reports of hits on Italian ships were reported, which led Hardwood to believe that the enemy was taking their fair share of damage. Perhaps this would cause them to back off. Yet, that was not the case. The Italian warships were still around, and the German bombers continued their assault. As the sun rose in the sky, the Birmingham fell victim to a Stuka attack and was left much damaged. Some of her gun turrets now were of no use. Then the destroyer Airedale was hit and sunk. The convoy's defensive capability was being reduced at an alarming rate. Soon, another merchant ship was forced to slow down, opening her to a new hell. With the targets of warships thus reduced, it was now the turn of the battleship Centurion, a vessel put to sea before the First World War. The Germans hoped another escort was about to be lost, but at this moment, the Italian ships turned for home, having used up enough fuel to make this necessary. Harwood got his wish, but it came too late, with too many losses. After further consideration, it was decided the convoy had to make for Egypt, as there were still enough German bombers to make Malta an impossible goal. To drive home this point, the Centurion was hit again, while another ship, the Arethusa, was hit and had to be scuttled. Even with the convoy clearly making for Alexandria, the Germans did not stop their attack. The U-boat 205 put two torpedoes into the cruiser Hermione. The only good news, if that term can be used, was that the Germans lost 12 bombers. The Italians, some of their ships, of which they had plenty more. Also, as the Axis had focused heavily on Vigorous, other parts of the Mediterranean and North Africa were spared, at least for a time. As for Rear Admiral Philip Vian, he blamed himself, but it's doubtful that any commander could have gotten through at a cost 
that was acceptable. It only got worse for the Commonwealth forces. Malta, having only received two ships' worth of supplies, still stared at defeat and occupation. The inevitable date was just pushed back a few weeks. On June 20th, Rommel captured Tobruk in his daring fashion, and the army of the Nile was pushed back past Mursa Matru. Having lost the momentum, Alexandria considered evacuating, and many of the surviving ships were sent south through the canal. Now it was wondered by London who would fall first, Malta or Egypt. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 85, Operation Pedestal. Last time, in trying to defy the odds, two separate convoys were sent to Malta in mid-June, one from Gibraltar, the other from Egypt. Yet both were doomed as the numbers of ships, subs, and planes arrayed against them were simply too much. So the civilians and soldiers of Malta dug in their heels even further, knowing it would be a while before another convoy could even be attempted. And yet, the Maltese and the Commonwealth soldiers currently sharing their fate were about to get relief of a kind. As everything seemed to be breaking the Axis way in mid-1942, as touching the Mediterranean, Hitler changed Operation Hercules, the occupation of Malta, to just the continued negating of the island by the Allies as a base from which to launch attacks against Rommel's supply line. After all, why go to the extra cost of time, shells, and lives to take something you currently have all but subdued? But that was short-sightedness on Berlin's part, for which they would pay a price. Back on Malta, rations had been severely reduced already. There could be no more cutbacks, which, in basic terms, gave the island's governor his target date the date at which the island would have to surrender in order to receive food from someone, even if that meant their new Axis masters. However, the date was not radioed to London. Too many secrets had previously been picked up and decoded by the Germans. If they were to learn of the date, the Luftwaffe could simply patrol aggressively until then. No, London was put on notice. There was a target date, but it was far enough away if supplies could be sent to the island soon. The people would hold out. We now know that date was September 7th. Yet any ships and supplies that could have sailed from Malta were currently heading for Archangel, for Stalin's forces, in the form of the PQ-17 convoy. Alas, had Churchill known that 24 out of the convoy's 36 supply ships, would never reach their destination, he may have well ordered it into the Mediterranean, as the odds would have been about the same. PQ-17 was the first Anglo-American joint naval operation under British control. It was not a propitious beginning. But Churchill and the cabinet were convinced that Malta needed to be salvaged, that whatever was needed to be done to get supplies to them would be done. Of course, C&C Mediterranean Admiral Sir Henry Harwood was not convinced, 
After all, he was still dealing with his dead and missing sailors, with his sunken and damaged ships from June. Oh, he knew Malta was important, enough so to lose men and ships, but these numbers could not be ignored. But if it was to be tried again, he just wanted enough ships from the Admiralty to give another convoy a fighting chance. And just like that, the decision was made. There would be another convoy sent to the island. First, the Admiralty had to give the convoy enough ships to protect it. So, bouncing around its two-ocean fleet, currently fighting a three-ocean war, the brass told London they could have the ships assembled by mid-August. Next came the decision about when the convoy should be launched. That was relatively easy to deduce, as the window of opportunity was out of their hands. Everyone involved knew that as the convoy reached the last leg of its journey, thus traveling the Narrows, that stretch of water between Sicily and Tunisia, it would need moonless nights to have the greatest chance of success. Thus, the week between August 10th and 16th was the only and last time for a while the Allies would have the darker nights they needed. As this latest convoy would be coming out of the West, it would be under the command of Vice Admiral Sir Neville Seifert of South Africa, as he was in command of Force H, and had, besides, real experience with the Malta route. Finishing up an operation at Madagascar, Seifert was now informed that he would be in overall command of Operation Pedestal, as this latest attempt was to be called. Seifert flew to London on July 13th. There he met with the Admiralty and others who would be on his team. First, there was his operations staff officer, Commander A.H. Thorold, Rear Admiral A.G. St. G. Leicester, who would be in charge of the coordinated air defense that would involve carriers and Rear Admiral H.M. Burrow, who would be commanding the close court escort to Malta with Force X, made up of the 10th Cruiser Squadron. These men spent many days at Norfolk House in St. James Square, planning out the details. It was decided that there had to be a decoy convoy to give Pedestal a fighting chance, coming out of the east. Yet this time, it would be a true decoy with only warships. No further supplies were to be risked, coming close to the German air patrols of Crete. As had happened so many times before, the home island's defensive position was to be reduced to guarantee enough ships for the escort. Only two modern battleships and an overstrength cruiser squadron would remain behind to keep an eye on the Bismarck-class battleship, Tirpitz, as she was attempting to sink anything sent to supply Russia. Being sent out as the backbone of the escort force were many cruisers and destroyers, along with the carrier Victorious. Seifert was most pleased as his planning was quickly underway while at the Admiralty. Questions could be asked and answered within a short time, and there were no radio signals going out to be intercepted by the Germans. They had been doing an impressive job of that, to date. Mulling over the reasons why Harpoon from the West had failed, Seifert and his staff reasoned that, firstly, their air cover had to be greatly increased, certainly during the convoy's time south of Sardinia and through the Narrows. But even that 
would not be enough. There had to be more cruisers and destroyers laid on, again, especially during the last part of the journey, at the very least, to keep the now unpredictable Italians in harbor. There had been a discussion of having one of the battleships making the entire journey, but simply put, it was not to be risked, not over Malta. Sacrificing for an ally was one thing, leaving the home island open to a direct assault was another. Still, those that made the journey would need more firepower, should the Italians send out their capital ships. As such, the Nelson and the Rodney, the most modern of the older battleships, were ordered to scap a flow for repairs, to ready themselves for the convoy. It was felt their 16-inch guns could handle anything the Italians brought out. Of course, the downside was, their best speed was only 21 knots. Should the need arise to pursue enemy vessels, these two stalwarts would not participate. Thus, having checked the Italians' possible offensive strategy, it was time to consider how to negate the German bombers. The solution seemed simple enough, to fight fire with fire. Seventy-two aircraft would be stationed in the carriers Eagle, Victorious, Admiral Leicester's flagship, and the Indomitable currently on its way from the Indian Ocean. Of course, the downside was that, of these 72 fighters, most were the Ferry Fulmar two-seater fighter reconnaissance aircraft. Their top speed was just under 300 miles an hour, which meant they could not pursue or run away from the faster, more modern German and Italian aircraft sure to attack. To further protect themselves, the carriers would have their radars trained at different altitudes, and their fighters, they were exchanging their planes out as best they could for more modern models, would be responsible for air defense at different heights. Yet this complex but useful system was only a shadow of what it would be in the future. Obviously, it was considered best if the convoy was never challenged by the larger Italian ships. So, the 10th Submarine Flotilla, recently back in the Mediterranean, took up its position. One sub would patrol north of Sicily, one off Palermo, another off Zalazzo, further east, while the last six were issued alternate patrolling areas south of Pantelleria. And once the convoy passed each sub, it would surface and then parallel the convoy's path to the north and south, acting as a shield. To further increase the chances of this convoy getting to Malta, the island's air power would have to play a prominent role. Thus, additional aircraft were flown in, bringing the island's air fleet up to 250 aircraft of various types. Yet, as the airstrips themselves were constantly bombed, at any one time, only a part of that force could be put up in the air. And even though their task was primarily defensive in nature, Air Vice Marshal Sir Keith Park wanted limited offensive operations conducted, or at the very least, offensive thinking during the operation. First, the RAF was to report all spotted enemy service vessels. Next, the convoy was to be protected by island or land-based air power as long as the ships were within range. Located enemy service ships were to be taken on, almost 
at any cost. And lastly, enemy airfields were to be located and bombed at night by liberators. What was good for the goose was good for the gander. To increase the chances of the enemy not focusing on the upcoming Operation Pedestal, the army in North Africa was asked to stage a limited offensive. Hopefully, this would pull Kesselring's attention toward land. But C&C Auchinleck said no. He did not believe that Malta was all that important to his survival. Fortunately, Churchill, the Navy, the Air Force, and the War Cabinet disagreed. Now it was time to focus on the actual ships that would be carrying the supplies. What were needed were the faster clan-type vessels, but due to losses within the Mediterranean and North Atlantic, these ships were being lost soon after being pressed into service, and those concerned knew that more would be lost before pedestal was over. But that was weighed against the importance of Malta. If freighters were going to be lost, so be it. The Admiralty would simply assemble as many as they could, so even though some would end up at the bottom of the Mediterranean, enough of them would get through to keep Malta in the war. Soon, twelve large ships were tagged to participate in the convoy. Per standard procedures, they were sent to the north, to Scapa Flow, to be made as combat-ready as possible. As there was no telling which ships would get through, and something of everything had to get to Malta, each ship would be carrying a little of everything, except for fuel. Those had to be tankers specifically built to carry that commodity. But by mid-1942, the British had run out of tankers that could match the minimum speed required, 16 knots, to have any chance of making it to Malta. And as the Admiralty knew, at this point, only the U.S. had such ships. But as the U.S. war against Japan was underway, the U.S. Navy itself was commandeering as many of these ships as possible. Yet, at this moment, the convoy had a champion on its side, an experienced British seaman. As 1942 opened up, Sir Ralph Metcalf of the Ministry of War Transport had expected the need of such ships and asked the United States for whatever they could part with. In reality, the U.S. now, fighting the distant Japanese Empire, could not afford to do without even one, but had given over two tankers, the Kentucky and the Ohio. This kind of assistance was demonstrative of the special relationship between the two countries, their navies, and, of course, between FDR and Churchill. Alas, the Kentucky had already been used in the June convoy and had to be sunk. This left everything up to the Ohio in regards to fuel. But did the Admiralty want to risk their last fast tanker for Malta? The War Cabinet and Churchill said yes, without hesitation. Ohio, built just two years before, pulled into the Clyde in June, fully loaded. It was then her owner, Texaco, was informed that she was being commandeered. The British Eagle Oil and Shipping Company took ownership on behalf of the Ministry of War Transport. A few days later, on July 10th, the American crew disembarked, replaced by British soldiers. 
With that done, Ohio was now under the command of Captain Dudley Mason, aged 39, and it sailed down to the King George V dock. There she would receive her additional armaments and other augmentation. The modern Ohio already had a 5-inch gun aft and a 3-inch HA gun forward. Now she was given 40-millimeter borefores and at least six Erlikons, a powerful anti-aircraft weapon at the time, which tracked targets relatively well, up to a distance of 1.5 kilometers. The men doing the fitting commented to each other that they had never seen a tanker with such armament. Surely this one had to be sailing straight into hell. Once the guns were into place, 24 naval and army gunners were brought on board to familiarize themselves with the weaponry. Captain Mason soon after received his naval liaison officer, Lieutenant D. Barton. Now that the Ohio could defend itself from most attacks, special bearings were added to her engines to help with the shock of any close explosions. Her steam pipes also received special attention and insulation. On July 29th, the Ohio left the Clyde for Douglas, where 11,000 tons of fuel was pumped into her. She then joined the convoy, already assembled. It made the crew of the Ohio feel more secure that the other 11 ships had been equally outfitted. Surely they were heading into someplace dangerous, but felt they could at least now dish out their own punishment. The other ships had also received a naval liaison officer, as maneuvers were expected to be beyond complicated. Now the men aboard settled down to wait and learn of their destination. But as will soon be discovered, Pedestal's destination was not nearly as secret as the Admiralty had believed or hoped. In overall command of the convoy was Commodore Commander A.G. Venables, and just before July ended, he was informed that a 13th ship, the freighter Santa Elisa, would be joining them. She was actually in Newport, Wales, when her captain received word to unload his cargo, fill up with more materials, and head quick-smart to the assembly area. This was typical of wartime assignments, so the crew did as they were told with little grumbling. By the last day of July, the Santa Elisa joined the other ships. To hopefully confuse the enemy more, the convoy was given the fictional W.S. designation, number 521. Convoys with the W.S. label normally sailed from the home island and made for the Suez via the Cape of Good Hope. If the Germans and Italians found out about the expedition, it was prayed they would think Pedestal was going anywhere but Malta. The men of the Royal Navy renamed the label W.S. to Winston's Specials. But had the Axis learned of the convoy and its destination even before it set sail? That was the question plaguing all those involved. To Commander A.G. Venables' thinking, he believed they did. There was no way a convoy of this size could be gathered unbeknownst to the enemy. Therefore, he suggested a reduction in the number of ships. A smaller convoy was easier to hide. To make matters worse, Lieutenant Commander S.W.F. Bennett's of the destroyer Bicester 
informed his superiors that word had already gotten out. After all, charts of the Mediterranean had already been handed out, and openly so. But the Admiralty had ruled. They knew the risks, but also knew of the necessity of as many ships getting through as possible. Still, rumors continued that crates plainly marked with Malta were seen by many being loaded on to the eleven freighters. Now, no one knew what to believe. Not that it mattered. Pedestal was given the green light. Malta had to be saved. At the very least, the endeavor had to be attempted. If Malta was lost, Egypt and the Middle East would not be far behind. Greetings, everyone. Um, well, you members, anyway. So, um, just again, want to say thank you for all those who listen and support the show. I really do appreciate it. And as such, I'm giving away another Harry's kit. Um, so, just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Put silver in the subject area so I'll know. And again, uh, it's just my way of saying thank you. Harry's is going to keep sending me these. I'm going to keep handing them out to you guys because it just it means so much to me that you're supporting the show. So this is just my way of saying thank you. Anyway, so good luck with that. Um, I will not be putting a notice on Facebook just to see how many actually listen and kind of when you do listen. You're probably like me. You gather up a whole bunch of ish episodes and then you listen. So I'll probably give it a month or two and then we'll do the contest. So good luck to everyone and I'll see you soon with the next episode.